So last time we looked at this uh, creation of self, how nothing is staying the same from moment to moment. But because of each mind moment conditioning the next, there is this sense of the continuity of these patterns of becoming, which are basically the repetition of, of volitional actions, which is called karma. So we talked about how we get kind of enclosed in these actions, and tonight I want to talk about how we can get free, how meditation practice releases us from these. And I hope this is well-timed because by the end of the retreat we should be talking about release, right? You want the fourth, you want the fourth noble truth at the end and not the second noble truth. So that's kind of where we are in the process of release. And so to, to start again, we're going to look at this question, the relationship between karma and the teaching of not-self. Because when you first think about it, they seem kind of contradictory, don't they? Like the teaching is, my actions come back to me. Where's the self in that? And somebody in the time of the Buddha, one of the bhikkhus, asked him this very question. He said, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. And the Buddha basically said, you haven't been listening to me. <laughs> you haven't got it. So these teachings of not-self but karmic cause coming back to us is, on the surface of it, contradictory. But as we go through it, I think you'll see that these teachings actually really need each other. The teaching of not-self depends on karma. The teaching of karma depends on the understanding of not-self. They're really related. So one of the things we have to remember is the teaching on not-self doesn't deny individuality, right? It doesn't mean that when we see anatta that we have this blissful merging with the cosmos and all is one. That's not the Buddhist understanding of things. We may understand it by thinking of this concept of a stream. I like to look at the, the streams that are flowing on this property, and there's a kind of analogy here. The streams don't have very much water in them this year, unfortunately, because of the lack of rain. But if you look at the water that's flowing, and you think, oh, let's, this is the spirit rock stream, let's call it, right by the meditation hall here. What is a stream? I looked up the definition in, in, on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> and it said that a stream is a body of water running in a channel or current bounded by its banks. But the main definition is a stream is a body of water. So we look at that stream and we ask what it is. Uh, does it change? Is the water changing? It's always changing, isn't it? You remember Heraclitus said you never step in the same river twice? You look at that stream, it's a very predictable, consistent formation. But if you look at the definition of the body of water, there's nothing constant in it. It's always moving. And yet, this stream is different from the Mississippi River. So it's very helpful to know the Spirit Rock stream and how to relate to it. And it's different from the Mississippi River. So by the same analogy, each of us can be considered a mind stream. This is a word that's used in Buddhist teaching. We're a mind stream. And we've got 
ever-changing thoughts, impressions, perceptions, feelings, emotions, moods, ideas, images running through this mind stream. And also, of course, the mind is receiving sense impressions from the five physical senses. There's nothing constant in there, but there is a continuity to the stream. So the stream that we call Carol is different than the stream we call Sally. And if you mix them up, you'll be in the wrong interview. (laughs) And if they mix them up, they'll be in the wrong bed. And we want to keep that straight. (laughs) So. (laughs) So this is a very useful designation. It keeps things simple. <laughs> so, nothing is, is steady, is fixed in this mind stream, but there's a kind of formation there that we can come to know and understand. Just like this stream has a certain shape, and it, you know, it has dams at certain points, it has currents and eddies at certain points, a big river might have a whirlpool in a certain place. So also there are patterns in in each of these mind streams and we can come to understand them. So in Western terms, we talk about this as personality. So I want to ask from a Buddhist point of view, what what do we mean by personality? And just the common, ordinary understanding of a personality. And you know, you think about, you know different people, they all have different personalities. Somebody's generous and somebody's not. Somebody's caring, somebody's indifferent. Somebody's angry, somebody's loving, um, somebody's funny, somebody's gloomy. All these things are just characteristics of different personalities. And when you think about the term, isn't personality basically about how we think, how we speak, how we feel, and how we act? Doesn't that kind of sum it up? So this idea of personality if it's about thoughts, feelings, speech, and action, is very much like our definition of karma, which is volitional actions of body, speech, and mind. So what we call personality, what makes each of us unique and and individual, is really just these formations of our own volitional activities carried out again and again, expressed through these three spheres, of action. So it's just a, a karmic patterning. There's nothing solid, but the patterning is kind of consistent. From one day to the next, one year to the next, we can see a continuity. And we see that our own personalities, our, our own mind stream, has been conditioned by our own volitional actions. And that's basically all personality is. It's the repetition of volitional actions, which is karma. Now, this forms the basis for our self-view, and that's why we call these things patterns of becoming. So we see this repetition go on in ourselves. We get kind of familiar with this kind of personality, and we identify with it. We say, this is who I am. You know, I'm the angry person, or the caring person, or I'm the helping person, or I'm the generous person. And this forms our basic view of who we are. So we're identifying 
a self with these formations, mental formations, sankhara, volitional formations, karmic formations, whatever you want to call them. We're talking about the fourth aggregate of sankharas here. We're identifying with these things which are all impermanent. You know, they may come and go in us with some regularity, but they're all impermanent. There's nothing fixed there. So we form this concept that we extend into the past. You know, I've always had this personality. And we extend it into the future. I'll always be this personality. And because it becomes so big, it feels like a burden. So this concept of self which we create starts to weigh us down. And in practice, it's one of the, one of the key things that we end up working with. We don't see how this eye has been formed. We started forming it very early on. We don't see it until we start to look in practice, but it's formed out of our, our various volitions. And by the time we look at it, you know, it's somewhat in place, but we haven't been aware of its creation. So this whole flow of becoming is rooted in ignorance. It's rooted in delusion. It exists because we haven't paid attention to its formation. So I want to just go through a little bit. There are many kinds of personalities that we meet in the world. You know, we all, we each have a personality. We meet other people. Everybody has a personality and there's a very broad range. So a lot of them are characterized by different aspects of greed, aversion, and delusion. And I'm just going to read out a short list that I just put together off the top of my head. This is not from DSM-4 or anything. (laughs) Um, That I just thought of, of different personalities I've run into in my adult life. And I'd like to ask you as you hear these words, just to reflect on what kind of personality that is. Now, we all have these tendencies of mind. But when we talk about it as a personality, it means that somebody has kind of organized their life around this as a kind of basic urge. That's what gives it the weight of personality. So this pattern has been very strong. And then it's gotten repeated, and we know them in this way. So these are some of the kind of underpinnings of um, personalities. And these are ones that I'm going to base on greed, aversion, and delusion. So you might also think which of the three kilases is most operative in each of these. I'll just mention them and, and go through them a little slowly. Types of personalities. Um, dependent or addictive. Craving for attention. Ambitious. Controlling. Fearful. Aggressive. Perfectionist. Self-critical. Melancholy. Lost or confused. So all of these kind of movements of mind are foundations that a whole life can be organized around trying to satisfy that particular tendency. And they're all volitional. They're all urges wanting to get satisfied. Now, these are kind of the unwholesome types of patterns. Patterns can also be based on a mix of wholesome and unwholesome. And you may know people like this. Um, The compulsive helper. 
somebody who's going to help you whether you want it or not, and who's not your mother, <laughs> right? Um, a very strict moralist, somebody who's ethical but holds it very tightly. And you, you run into these people a lot in the monasteries. They're the ones who are experts in the Vinaya, the monastic code of discipline. And they tend to hold it really closely and expect you to hold it really closely. So there's a mix there, some wholesome, some unwholesome. Now, when you think about personalities that are really largely wholesome, people who are loving, kind, generous, compassionate, joyful, these we don't tend to think about as patterns so much because the compulsive element is not there or the constraining element is not there. We more think of the wholesome, purely wholesome qualities as expressions of freedom, free choice. So the patterns that are difficult are the ones that are coming out of compulsion and compulsion is always based on some ignorance. So these are the ones I'm mainly going to talk about the undoing of. We don't have to undo the wholesome patterns if they're coming out of freedom in our hearts. But we wake up in practice and we have some kind of, we see some kind of pattern in the way we approach life and we discover it's not so easy to change. This is one aspect of the noble truth of difficulty. Not so easy to change these habits of mind. Um, we, we find ourselves in a pattern that brings suffering and it's not so easy to step out or to change it. The Buddha's teaching is all about stepping out of these patterns. But he used different, he used different language. He used language of the kilesas, of craving, of clinging, and of becoming. That sounds kind of dry and abstract, doesn't it? Clinging doesn't exactly get your juices going, does it? But when I talk about fearful, ambitious, controlling, aggressive, self-critical, this is juicier, right? This is kind of the ground where Western psychology takes its stand. It looks at the individual characteristics. But don't think that they're any different. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. It's just that we need to... um, interpret his language in the light of our unique personal experience of living. And so we see that each of these personality patterns has elements of the kilesas, if it's, if it's compulsive. It has elements of craving, of clinging, and of becoming. But he's pointing to these very individual things that you and I experience, but we experience differently because we have different personalities. So don't get misled by the dryness of his language. He's pointing to this very juicy personal stuff that all of us are working with. And this, um, I think this is expressed in this, this quotation from the Buddha. Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action like the chariot wheel by the pin. So this is Karma. The word action here is karma. So our volitional actions have bound us, have limited our freedom in the same way that a wheel is fixed to the axle by a pin. And all the teachings are about how to undo this fixing, how to undo this bondage 
that our own actions have put us into. So this is the sense of karma as a burden and an obstacle. Living beings are bound by karma like the chariot wheel by the pin. But if this was all there was, we'd really be in trouble. But it's not. This is the territory of the first and second noble truths. But the key is that within this stream of volitional actions, nothing is fixed. Nothing is even constant from one moment to the next. So there is this essential openness, spaciousness, There's an essential freedom at the center of our beings. And what it says is that anything that's in there can be changed. And that's the purpose of Dharma practice. Dharma practice is to free us from these patterns that we have formed that constrict the mind and heart and bring suffering. So let's talk a little bit about how Dharma practice does this and how patterns get undone through what we've been doing here for the last month. So many of you have talked about seeing, you've talked about in the interviews, seeing these habitual thoughts, habitual emotions that are difficult and learning to work with them. So these habitual patterns that arise in the form of thoughts and feelings, this is old karma. When we get quiet physically and we sit down, we see the mind keeps moving and it's moving in these old, rather predictable patterns, which we've repeated again and again. So as we come into meditation, we feel ourselves at the effect of these patterns. So we experience qualities of of anger and sadness and fear and judging and self-criticism and um, sadness and so on desire and wanting, longing. So the meditation practice is to notice this old karma, which is a pattern, and to bring mindfulness to it. That's always the instruction. So this is where it gets very interesting. When mindfulness meets these old habit formations, something different can happen. And this is the unfolding of freedom. Sometimes when mindfulness sees an old thought, the thought doesn't grip us in the same way. When mindfulness meets an old emotion, the emotion doesn't grip us in the same way. Why is that? Because we're very aware. And we're very uh, uh, wise. Mindfulness has wisdom that knows how to see this as just another arising phenomenon. So, if the old motion thought comes up, and we buy into it again and react in the exact same way that we have, then we're reinforcing the old karma and there's no change. But if the old pattern comes up and we see it with mindfulness, there's a new response. We don't have to believe the thought. We don't have to believe the feeling means that we're a bad person or unworthy. Or if we're afraid, we don't have to believe something awful is going to happen. We just see, oh, that's the emotion of fear. It arises, it persists, passes away. No problem. When we can bring that kind of mindfulness to the pattern, there's a new response. So there's a new kind of personality being shaped in that. And the response of mindfulness is based in freedom. It's not based in compulsion. All of a sudden, we have choice with these things. I don't have to do that act. 
I don't have to believe that thought. I don't have to feel afraid of my fear. I don't have to feel angry at my anger. So we feel this freedom coming in through the, the power of our awareness and our mindfulness. So we start to see the door opening. This is really a big, big shift. We start to see the door opening, but then, you know what? Sometimes it closes again. So we have all this wisdom. We understand we don't have to believe in it. We don't have to buy it. We don't have to get upset by it. But many, many times again, we will. So this is this observing the pattern in action and not being able to see it so clearly can be really discouraging, can be really frustrating. This is where you just need the faith to see it through. Because sometimes we'll lose that strong mindfulness and we'll fall back into the old pattern. But the next time, the mindfulness will be there, will be stronger again, we'll see it more clearly, and there's even a greater opening to freedom. But it, it can be frustrating to see the stuff coming. We know what to do and we can't do it. So I love this interchange. Trudy Goodman was teaching, I think this was at uh, DPP a year or so ago. And uh, someone asked the question uh, after her Dharma talk and said, um, I'm so tired of seeing my same old stuff coming up again and again and again. And Trudy's response was, whose stuff would you like to have? (laughs) Because the fact is, it really doesn't matter. We all have our own stuff. And we all have to work with it. All these patterns are binding. So this is kind of an intermediate stage in relation to the pattern. We know enough to know what to do, but we can't always do it. So we feel caught sometimes, but not all the time. And that's the beauty. That's a sign that the practice is working, that mindfulness is developing. And once you start to feel that momentum, the pattern is basically doomed. It's a little bit like, because you've understood how not to buy into it and not to believe in it and not to identify with it, it's like you've cut a tree at the root. If you cut the root of a tree, the leaves don't all fall off that day. But the tree is not going to survive because it can't continue to get nourishment. So it will live and the leaves will be strong for a while but not forever. So this is, the, this is the shift that's so important. When mindfulness comes in, the pattern is starting to lose um, its power. And it loses it in two ways. We don't identify. That means we don't claim it as I and my, I or mine. We just see it's fear or it's anger or it's sadness. And we don't form a new self around it. It's just an emotion arising, passing away. Secondly, when mindfulness is strong and mindfulness continues to grow, that, power lose, that, uh, that pattern loses its impact on us. It loses some of its power against the strength of mindfulness. It can't touch us as deeply. It can't move us in the same way that it used to. So there's a strength of mind and of wisdom that's growing that provides a protection and a refuge for us. So as mindfulness is understanding and taking the power out of the pattern, it's basically, the pattern is basically starting to fade away 
Sally used this term viraga the other night in her talk on transcendent dependent origination. And it's, it's pointing to that same thing. In Sally's talk, it's really the kilesas as a whole that are fading away. But we can each feel our particular pattern fading away, which is the particular way that the kilesas have crystallized in our experience, in, in our life. They start to fade away. And so we see that we don't have to work these neurotic reactions out on the level of the neurosis. But there is this greater strength that is unveiled through the Dharma that takes care of it for us. We don't have to go back to, did my mother do that or did my father do that and how did it trace through when I was a teenager? We don't have to do all that. Being in the present moment and understanding the empty nature of these formations does the work for us. So then, as, as the, the pattern fades, these emotions are still there. They're not uprooted, but they're emotions that everybody has. Everybody knows anger and fear and sadness and wanting. So they just start to resume their natural place in the flow of life. Kids have these, we have these, and they're not a binding force that's the center of our, of our being anymore. So this is kind of our work as practitioners. The Buddha put it this way, the wise one makes straight this restless mind as a fletcher straightens the shaft of an arrow. A fletcher is an arrow maker. So we think of that, that the practice is kind of straightening out our mind from these um, entangling reactions that we've believed in through not understanding for a long time. So this intermediate part of the path needs a lot of patience. You know, these patterns can come up and be seen, come up and be seen, grab us and drop many, many times, you know, over years. So we don't know how long it's going to take for them to undo, for them to release. But we do know that it will happen. This is a quotation of the Buddha's Suppose, bhikkhus, an ocean-going boat rigged with ropes, having been exposed to the water for six months, has been dragged to the shore for the winter. Then the ropes that had been affected by wind and sun, when soaked by the monsoon rains, will easily go to waste and rot away. It is similar with a bhikkhu who applies herself to the meditative development of her mind her fetters will easily be loosened and rot away. So this meditative development, this is bhavana. This is the development of the wholesome qualities of mindfulness and concentration and all the factors of enlightenment that Pascal talked about. So this is the development of the path. And it's helpful to know where the path is leading because the path is its own unfolding. So we have to reflect on this quote from one of the great wisdom masters of our last century, which is Yogi Berra. (laughs) And he put it this way, if you don't know where you're going, you could end up somewhere else. (laughs) So let's think about where the path is going so that hopefully we can end up there. 
So we're developing our bhavana, our meditative development. We're generating wholesome mind states that begin with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the first in the factors of awakening, and it's key to unfolding uh, all the others. And then we're also in parallel developing uh, the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And these two movements, I feel very, very helpful for Westerners to develop these two together. Because the mindfulness, basically understood as the wisdom training, loving-kindness, and Brahma-viharas, the opening of the heart. And the Brahma-viharas bring so much, have the potential to bring so much self-confidence when we start feeling that goodness unfolding in ourselves, we can really trust what's in our own hearts, relax into it, and let it take us. And that brings a lot of um, ease and happiness. Mindfulness and wisdom start to unfold, bringing along qualities of energy and determination, renunciation, calm, non-identification. So this is a very potent process that's unfolding in our minds, through our, through our dharma practice. So what's happening is we come into practice and we've got this old stream of becoming. You know, generally we're not so wise when we start to meditate. We have this stream of becoming that's been formed and not understanding and is mostly based on the kilesas. As we sit, we feel all that. And so we kind of see that This cycle has been going on over and over and over in our lives. Often we can trace it back to childhood and teenage years and all through our adulthood, these different personality tendencies. And where it has taken us again and again is to lake samsara. (laughs) Just recreating the suffering over and over in the same kind of predictable ways. But now we... And it's helpful to see that that has happened out of our own intentions... You know, basically the kalesas are all expressing intentions. These personality styles are all expressing intentions. So this intention has repeated, has brought us to this place of Lake Samsara. But now there's a new river coming in. And this is the river of the Dharma. And to these old intentions, habitual patterns, we start adding the intentions of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, investigation, energy, calm, concentration, equanimity, joy, non-identification, wisdom. All of these are intentional too. And that stream flowing into the lake starts to turn the flow. You know, lakes are fed by rivers, so there's an inflow and an outflow. Now we flow this stream of intentions into this river that's going into Lake Samsara and it starts to divert it. It starts to turn it in a new direction and that direction is the Nibbanic Ocean. (laughs) So we're no longer flowing to Lake Samsara, we're going to the Nibbanic Ocean. That's where we're headed. That's the only place we're headed. If these streams of becoming, these old patterns of becoming, really referred to something fixed in us, we couldn't divert that river. All the dharma in the world couldn't shift it. If, you know, ignorance was planted in the heart forever, if greed was planted in the heart, if self-criticism was planted in the heart forever, all the dharma couldn't move it. But it's because our basic nature is open and empty that nothing is fixed in us. So yeah, 
these old patterns have a lot of power. They've been active for a lot of years. Some would say lifetimes, but they're not fixed. And so these wholesome forces come in and they start to wear away the patterns of misunderstanding, the patterns of um, based in ignorance and craving. So we can become liberated because our being is not fixed and the dharmic elements only lead in that direction. This stream of intention, which is also karmic, only leads in one direction. So we understand the path itself is a karmic unfolding. We are taking advantage of the law of karma by generating these wholesome intentions moment after moment after moment. Basically, mindfulness and metta. Those are the primary intentions we work with. And all the rest springs from that. As we generate those intentions moment after moment, we're changing inwardly the the karma of our being. This is part of the new karma that's getting added, and it sends us in a completely different direction. If one doesn't believe in karma, it's very hard to explain the workings of the path. The workings of the path depend on karma. So we start to see that intention, even though it feels light in the beginning, remember the first moment you were taught to become mindful? Did that feel like a transformative life experience? It didn't for me. It felt like a sore butt. (laughs) But you see how you keep applying that moment after moment for a month, and it goes to a really deep place. So this intention to be present to pay attention to our experience generates enormous power, enormously liberating power as we just keep doing it moment after moment after moment. So we see that our tool, our basic tool, is intention. To tell you the truth, it's our only tool. It's our only tool to change the karmic flow is to put in new intentions. Tibetans have a way of pointing to this that's really uh, succinct. They say, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we start to put these new intentions into the karmic stream. And you know, it's kind of like when when I came into Dharma practice, my life was chaotic. I had some happiness, I had some unhappiness, I had no idea what caused either one. And I just felt vulnerable to the, to the winds that were going to blow me. So it's kind of like, to con- continue the lake analogy, it's kind of like before we understand how this all works, we're adrift on, on the sea. And a current comes and sweeps us that way, and another current comes and sweeps us that way. We may go to happiness, we may go into suffering. But it's all out of our control. It seems so random It's happened, the chaos is happening outwardly, the chaos is happening inwardly, and we have no way to steer. We don't know where the harbor is. So as we listen to the teachings and we find out where to put our intention, we find the rudder. Intention is our rudder on this chaotic ocean of life. And if we hold to that rudder, it will take us to the harbor. That's its, the only direction of the teachings is to the harbor. So this is the value of intention. It lets us steer our lives because it influences the whole karmic flow. 
This is a quotation from Nisargadat uh, Maharaj. A questioner uh, put this question to him, and uh, he made a statement, the questioner responded. This is the dialogue. Maharaj said, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. And the questioner said, surely karma interfered. So tease this out. Your own will is a synonym for intention. So Maharaj is saying it's your intentional actions that have shaped your destiny. And the questioner says, well, surely karma interfered. Maharaj, karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. Your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. And how do you do it? Through your own will, through your own intention, through setting your own karmic direction, using the tools of the practice. So, there are two kinds of uh, threads in the teachings of the Buddha. One is if you want worldly happiness, and the other is if you want liberation. If you want worldly happiness, the basic prescription is Danasi Labhavana. Generosity, morality, and development of the mind, primarily loving kindness. These are basically enough over time to take us to normal worldly happiness. But some of us want another dimension, and that's the dimension of liberation. That needs a different set of instructions. So let's talk about what leads to that happiness of liberation, which the Buddha said is the highest happiness. This is where we get into the the teaching on the end of karma. The Buddha said that for one who has fully awakened, such a person has come to the end of karma. This is kind of a mysterious statement, and I don't pretend to understand everything it means. But essentially it means that they are no longer bound by action in any dimension or in any way. There can still be the results of past karma, like when the villagers were assaulting Angulimala when he went out for alms, even after he was awakened. Past karma can still come to fruition. Mahamogalana um, died in a very unhappy way that the Buddha said was the result of some of his past actions. But the arhant, the liberated one, is not generating any future karma, anything that's going to play out um, in, in future circumstances. So how is this? I think that something like this was pointed to um, by the Buddha when he talked about the night of his enlightenment. There are two suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, 4 and 26, that describe the night of his enlightenment from slightly different angles. They're very worth a read. This is from Majjhima 4. And he said that on the night of his awakening, his mind became very concentrated. He called it purified, bright, and malleable. And when the mind is malleable, we can turn it to whatever we want to turn it to. So he said he directed his mind that night to the recollection of his past lives. And he said he recollected one past life, ten past lives, a hundred past lives, a thousand past lives, a hundred thousand past lives. 
You may believe this or not. But this is what it says on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. And he recollected, I was born here and I lived this kind of life. Then I was born there and I lived that kind of life. Now, there's a little um, connection between, there were three insights that night. There's a little connection between them that isn't in the suttas, but I kind of imagine. So I kind of imagine after that, the Buddha goes, well, why are those lives formed like that? What was responsible for creating lives like that? So then he took this concentrated mind and he turned it in a different direction. He turned it to see many, many beings passing away and reappearing, dying and being reborn. And to try to understand how it came about that people were born in such different circumstances with such different strengths and weaknesses. And he saw in that second inside of the night that it was owing to their actions. That beings reappeared in the world in a new birth according to their past actions. That their circumstances were shaped by that. So now there's another little interlude. And here I'm going to suggest that he saw good actions led to a happy rebirth. Harmful actions led to an unhappy rebirth. But in both cases, they led to rebirth. Now, this is kind of interesting because if you think of it in terms of becoming and the self, you can kind of think how we can do good things from a self-centered viewpoint. I'm going to go out and fix the world and it's I that am important. I'm going to be very generous because I'm such a good and helping person. I'm going to be so strict with my morality because I am going to be perfect in that realm. So there can be self even around good actions, good karma. So here I'm thinking the Buddha thought, well, doing bad is certainly not the way to go. That leads to unhappy birth. But doing good has its limitation too. You still get born and go through birth, aging, illness, and death. What could be the way to real liberation? What could be the way to a peace that doesn't ever stop? So he said then he turned his eye, his purified mind and his eye to the destruction of the taints. The taints are another grouping for these impure qualities of heart and mind that lead us into suffering. And he said that at that moment he understood the Four Noble Truths. And he understood the destruction, that the taints were being destroyed in him, these afflictions that, that bound him. And at that point, he realized his own liberation. So what was this understanding that brought him out even of the realm of good karma into the complete liberation of mind? That's the interesting question. What leads to the end of karma, being hooked on karma at all? But I just want to talk a little bit about this, um, this moment of awakening, and we'll come back to that question. He expressed it in a couple of different ways that really point to this ending that he had experienced. One quote, this is from Majima 26. He said, he saw right then, my deliverance is unshakable. 
This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being. This is my last birth. I have stepped out of that cycle of becoming, of being born and aging and getting ill and passing away. I've stepped out of it. And then there's this famous poem that's in the Dhammapada that you probably will recognize. Through many a birth I have wandered through samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this body, this mind, this self. Painful is birth again and again. House builder, you are seen. You will build no house again. All your rafters are broken. The ridgepole is shattered too. My mind has attained the unconditioned and reached the very end of craving. House builder, you are seen. You will build no house again. This is the end of becoming, the end of birth, the not even taking up good karma. So then the Buddha follows this. there's, There's good karma, there's bad karma. And then he says, what karma? Well, let me put it a different way. There's karma that he called dark leading to suffering. There's karma he called bright leading to happy states. And then there's this third kind, the karma that leads to the end of karma. What is the karma that leads to the end of karma? It is this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It's the eightfold path that leads to the end of karma. So it's the eightfold path that leads to the end of becoming. So as you put yourself on this eightfold path, it's helpful to understand that that's where it leads. There are good habits being cultivated, but basically the eightfold path is leading to stepping out of birth altogether. And you can understand birth on a moment-to-moment basis if you don't like to think of it as rebirth. Either one is fine. But we're stepping out of the process of becoming anything at all. So we've talked about this in an earlier talk. We talked about discovering this quality of awareness within ourselves that is present, knowing all the changing phenomena, but is not involved with them, is not caught up with them. And we've, we've given some different names to this. Carol has talked about this as the pure citta that's free of the three kilesas. Upasika Key used the phrase unentangled knowing. One teacher talked about resting in the gap between feeling and craving. Or Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about it as temporary nibbana. These are all pointing to that same experience, an open awareness that's not caught up in the phenomena. This kind of awareness has a flavor of unbecoming, has a flavor of unborn, has a flavor of undying, has a flavor of unconditioned. It's not constructed out of other elements. It's there when we stop doing. When we stop grasping, it's there. So again, the Buddha describing his insight on that night of awakening I discovered the unborn, unailing, undying, supreme security from bondage, Nibbana. This open space of the pure citta, of unentangled knowing, is unailing. It's healthy. 
And that's why the ability to rest there is so healing. Because we are resting in an element that is essentially free and unailing and undying. So again, it's why we don't have to work it out on the level of the emotions, which are all subject to coming and going. We discover this other dimension. And it's this unailing element that rots the fetters. This is the sunlight and the wind on those ropes and sails that have been drenched in the monsoon rains. So the Buddha said, if there were not this unborn and unbecome and unconditioned, there would be no escape possible from what is born, become, and conditioned. But because there is this unborn, unbecome, unconditioned, there is an escape possible from what is born, become, and conditioned. So this unborn element, this unailing element, has the potential to free us from all the patterns of becoming, which we've created again and again through our own volition. So what's the essence of this quality? There's something in it about peace. There's something in it about calm. There's something in it about stillness. There's something in it about non-doing. Here's one of the descriptions of Nibbana, the full, fullness of Nibbana. The stilling of all formations, the relinquishment of all attachments, the destruction of craving and cessation, that is Nibbana. So in this full awareness of unentangled knowing, we can stop doing. We can stop all the different forms of activity and just rest in that stillness. Someone mentioned in an interview the other day that their, their meditation for a while was like a completely flat lake on which no wind was blowing. So there were no ripples at all. That is that quality of the stilling of all formations. So in that place, we let go of all kinds of self-centered activity, even good self-centered activity. We let go of it all. And then, and then there's a stillness we feel. We can trust in that stillness. We can rest in that stillness. We don't have to do anything with it. We can rest in it. And out of that stillness, some other dimension may emerge. So I had one, um, one particular meeting that revealed to me something of this um, other dimension. I was in Kathmandu and I was visiting a, um, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. His name is Sokni Rinpoche. I had teachings from him over a number of years and I wanted to go visit him at his home monastery in Kathmandu. And so I stayed in Kathmandu for a couple of weeks and would go up and receive teachings from him. And while I was in town, there was this a very highly regarded older Tibetan Lama who was staying at uh, Rinpoche's monastery named Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. And I'd heard a lot about him. He's a sort of famous Dzogchen master uh, in his lineage. And Rinpoche asked me if I wanted to meet Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. Um, actually, I'll back up a sec. A friend of mine was a student of Nyoshul Kenpo and asked me to give him some dana. So I told Rinpoche I'd like to offer some dana. 
but I can just give you the envelope and you can offer it to him. And he said, wouldn't you like to meet Nyosho Ken Rinpoche? And I said, no, I don't need to. You can just offer the dana. Because I sort of thought, you've seen one Rinpoche, you've seen them all. <laughs> and then I sat with that for about a day and I thought, no, I would like to meet him. I've heard a lot about him. Friends have spoken really highly of him. I would like to meet him. So it was all prepared. Um, it was a little bit of a formal occasion. Uh, it happened in the shrine, one of the shrine rooms uh, where he was staying. And he got dressed in this kind of gold robe and an interpreter was there and Sotni Rinpoche was there and Nyosho Ken Rinpoche's wife was there. And I came in and I was feeling nervous because <laughs> I'd heard a lot about him and heard he was a very special teacher. So I went in and did my three bows when the time was right. And on my knees, I approached him and I offered the um, envelope containing the, the dana that my friend wanted to offer him. So he received it from me. And then uh, he took my head in his hands and he looked right in my eyes. And at that moment, something shifted in him. So what I remember is his eyes moved a little bit apart, like he was looking way in the distance. And his gaze opened up into something I had never experienced before. Looking into his eyes, there was this kind of stillness and vastness that I did, didn't know was possible. His mind was, it was just like looking into some still ocean and it just seemed like it went forever into him. And even to say his mind was still wasn't accurate. There was no mind there to be either still or moving. There was just this presence that was completely undefended. His eyes were just open and completely unguarded. I was looking right into his vastness. And then my self-consciousness came up. I got nervous because I thought, he's so undefended, I guess I'm also undefended. He's going to see my nervousness and... I felt uncomfortable. So at that moment, something kind of closed in me. But I just had the feeling if I could have kept looking in his eyes a little longer. (laughs) But then the moment passed. But it was an amazing revelation, kind of a transmission of what's possible for us What level of development is possible that he could move into a space like that? I have no doubt that he was was resting completely in the unconditioned, completely unmoved by the sight of me or the room or anything, and that he had the ability to do that at will. He just moved there, and he was just there. They gave me a sense of how the Buddha could have transmitted awakening to so many people as he did, because I believe he had at least that stillness and more to share with people. So this is possible for us. This is part of our potential as human beings and through this practice, through the practice of the Dharma. So I just want to close with one final quotation from the Buddha. This is from the Udana also on this state of Nibbana. One who is dependent has wavering. 
One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Let's just sit together for a moment, please. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there nor an in-between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.